Hi, my name is Anita Johnson. Before we play our show, I wanted to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become a part of our group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. We can only do this work with your support. Go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation. Thank you so much. Now here's the show. system is in too many ways broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamrani, and on today's Making Contact, we're talking about the ways our health and the environments we live in are deeply linked. Cool. So this is the our kind of compound area back here, we're behind two um, homes, and then there's a yurt structure that was built here by MG and... I'm meeting up with Trey Vasquez in an outdoor office for an environmental organization called Movement Generation, or MG, as Trey calls it. It's in a cottage office space over here. You can hear the chickens, you can see the chickens here. <laughs> you know, a lot of um, native plants here, and. The offices are in a small garden in Berkeley, where Trey agreed to meet me. Trey does a lot of work around environmental justice and envisioning a collective future under climate change, which of course includes chickens and backyard food. Uh, my name is Trey Vasquez, and I am a collective member and co-director of Movement Generation Justice and Ecology Project. I live in Santa Rosa, California, which is occupied Pomo, uh, Wapo, and Coastal Miwok territory. Trey agreed to talk to me about his work up in Santa Rosa, where he lives, which was the site of some of the biggest fires California has ever seen. A wildfire burning out of control in California wine country forced hundreds of people from their homes overnight. This Heavy devastation focused around Santa Rosa. That is where a chunk of the city is now burned to the ground. The northeastern part. And Trey was in the thick of it. So the first year I was actually working as an organizer was 2017. So that was the Tubbs fire. I remember it was like two in the morning and my cousin was just down the road and sent me a text and was like, we're on fire. And I was like, what? And then I started to realize how intense it was when I looked outside. In my neighborhood, which was mostly a working class, brown neighborhood, and everybody was packing their cars. We left at like three in the morning. I remember the lines for the gas station were like down the road and it was like gridlock traffic. So that was like the huge wake up for me that was like, dang, we do not have the infrastructure in our communities to really know how to handle this. A few days later, because of the chaotic experience of evacuating during the fire, Trey began to organize in his community. And um, that <clears throat> basically was like rapid response within, I believe, two to three days of, of the fires starting up. We were already on the ground working at a local churches, seeing anywhere from like 200 people a day coming in. And that was beautiful, right? How people unified and came together and self-organized, um, but also super high stress, as you could imagine. As he worked at the mutual aid centers, Trey was exposed to extremely high levels of toxic smoke. 
I mean, in 2017, we had that fire come down the hills um, from what's called Fountain Grove, jump across the 101 freeway and jump into town, hit a huge neighborhood called Coffee Park and also blew up, literally like blew up the Kmart that was there. So when you think about all of the toxic materials that are burning and that we're essentially breathing in, it's horrifying. And it wasn't just this one experience with smoke and high stress. He actually lived through multiple fires back to back. And then we have fires the next year. And then in 2019 was the, the Kincaid fire. So I have been in the North Bay for, I believe, four consecutive fires and all that comes with it. And then in the years where there weren't fires directly in the area, we were heavily impacted by the smoke coming from down south and from up north as well. Then one day, Trey woke up with a strange shooting, overwhelming pain in his body. It felt like I had just like thrown out my back and that's what I assumed that it, that it was. And so I was trying to do all the things that you would do, you know, for when you throw out your back, uh, chiropractor, massage, and nothing was addressing, nothing was fixing it. And I went on like in that level of, of flare up for about six months and then it subsided. Fortunately, I had access to healthcare, right? But I wasn't getting very many answers. They were telling me to take Epsom salt baths. And I started to realize like into that like six months of explaining the situation over and over and again and getting bounced around in circles between doctors and rheumatologists and other, you know, specialists. I started to realize that a lot of what was happening is that they were assuming that I was seeking opiates, you know, that I was seeking painkillers. But it went on for, it went on for six months, it, it stopped. Um, and I had like a remission of the symptoms and then it came back six months later. I continued to go through the same thing, just getting bounced around, um, told again to take salt baths and stretch and exercise. Actually, they were telling me, you just need to exercise. And I was like, I can't even walk. Like, I don't know what's going on with my body. And finally, after that was about a year and a half, the second flare-up was a year and a half long. I was finally diagnosed with fibromyalgia. There's no direct proof that his illness was actually caused by the fires, which is sometimes a problem with inflammatory diseases. You can't prove causation, but he feels certain that it is linked. Because I don't know that it was a one-time event. I do know that it flared up in that high time of stress and toxicity of the fires, that level of, of trauma and burnout, and on top of the toxicity from the smoke, I feel like there's a direct linkage there. The Tubbs fire that burned down Santa Rosa's Coffee Park is the fire that sparked this testing. The principal investigator of the study says that firefighters who fought the Tubbs fire showed higher than normal levels of carcinogenic chemical compounds. San Francisco firefighters... Trey's experience is actually the topic of today's show sickness arising out of the environment or because of social conditions, the race, class, gender conditions under which a person lives. And you know, I've grown up in pretty toxic communities for a lot of my life. Like I grew up in a copper mining town um, and then I've lived in low income neighborhoods the majority of my life. So I think there's a certain level of being accustomed to seeing the signifiers of, of toxicity around me, but I don't think I knew how, how bad it was. For a long time, these kinds of stories were mostly anecdotal, and it's still difficult for people like Trey to get compassionate care from their doctors who often don't even believe their symptoms. But 
Some people in the medical field are beginning to pay attention to people like Trey Vasquez. And that's because the kind of disease that he developed is on the rise. An inflammatory disease. We're seeing chronic inflammatory response present in a lot of the diseases I treat as a hospital medicine doctor, from cardiovascular disease to cancer to diabetes to even depression and anxiety. That's Rupa Maria. She's a professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. Globally, diseases caused by inflammation have grown somewhere between three to 10 times from their levels just 40 years ago. And that includes illnesses we don't usually think of as being inflammatory in nature, like cancer. I am helping 35-year-olds die of colon cancer. Colon cancer is an inflammatory disease. It is a disease where local tissue inflammation in the colon is driving carcinogenesis. This is not a genetic phenomenon. But the way that we're taught about these things in medicine is there's this overemphasis on precision therapies and genetic, you know, let's go look at the individual, as opposed to looking at why are 35-year-olds now dying of colon cancer? So in order to answer that question, Rupa Maria, along with Raj Patel, wrote a book called Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. Inflamed. Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice is a story about how our bodies and our planet and our communities are inflamed. And we'll talk about what inflammation is in a second. But the idea is essentially that our planet is on fire, but our bodies are also subject to a range of diseases that are associated with the immune response called inflammation, and our communities are at each other's throats. Raj Patel studies food systems, and he's a writer and a teacher. He's previously written books on nutrition and food deserts. And what we suggest in this book, and the argument that we make, is that the reason that our planet is on fire is the same reason that there are fault lines in society, and it's the same reason that some people, much more than others, are subjected to the kinds of stress and exposures that generate in our bodies inflammatory disease. So our story is not a story about metaphor, but it's a story actually about how disease spreads in through our body and out into the world through our communities into our planet and then back again. The link between the outside environment and how they cause illness within us is called inflammation. Inflammation is the body's ancient response, the immune system's response to damage or the threat of damage. And it's the way in which the body heals. So when you have a paper cut, that's an acute inflammatory response. The cells in the body detect that there's been a breach of the skin. All these biological mediators are mobilized to help heal that wound. When the wound is healed, the inflammatory response goes quiet. When damage or the threat of damage keeps coming, you know, something like being afraid to be evicted from your home whether you are encountering, you know, exposure to toxic pesticides in your work as a farm worker, the damage that is experienced in that way, if it is ongoing, the body never has a chance to heal and the inflammatory response never goes quiet. And you can think of that as a smoldering fire that then go on to create collateral damage in the tissues of our bodies. Rupa, there was a case study of somebody who sort of illustrates what you're talking about. And it was a really sad story. Can you talk to me about who, I think her name was Sheila McCarley was and what happened to her? Yeah, Sheila McCarley was one of my patients and she was in, you know, her 60s when she came to our hospital. She had been born and raised in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where she pulled catfish from the most polluted watershed in the United States, the Tennessee River Valley watershed. 
And by the time she moved to the Central Valley of California at 40, her hair was falling out. She had a rash across her face. Her joints were swollen. And the doctors who saw her there thought, you know, okay, this looks like lupus. For five months, she was in and out of the ICU with what looked like sepsis. So overwhelming inflammation that's usually caused by a virus or a you know, fungal bacterial infection, but we couldn't find any evidence of infection. We couldn't even find any evidence of lupus. All the tests that we sent up were negative. What we did see in her was just off the charts levels of inflammation in her body. And we put her on antibiotics and we put her on pressors to keep her blood pressure off and she'd come out of the ICU. And as soon as those were off for a couple of days, her blood pressure would drop again and she'd become again this systemic inflammatory response. She'd go back into the ICU, in and out, in and out. Her, her situation was quite severe, and after five months of being poked and prodded and not given any real hope of improving, she asked for care to be withdrawn, and she passed away shortly thereafter. And when we did an autopsy, what we found is that all of her bone marrow had been replaced by activated macrophages, so her body was just racked with inflammation. It was very clear that her childhood and where she grew up as a poor white person in Alabama was a part of what we were seeing manifest now in her later decades of life. The river where she was eating catfish from had, you know, the 3M factory was there putting their forever chemicals in the water. There was a chlorine factory that was losing about 150,000 pounds of mercury every year before it was shut down. And so her situation to me really brought together the inflammation of a body, the inflammation of a social condition, the inflammation of a planet, and seeing how these things are completely inextricably linked. The linkage between the outside world and our internal body systems isn't just a metaphor. It's a real relationship that can have massive repercussions on our health. And we're going to hear more about that connection right after the break. We're just jumping in to remind you that you're listening to Making Contact. If you've liked what you've heard so far, please visit us online at radioproject.org, where you can find out more information about the book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine, and the Anatomy of Injustice. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you'd like to find us there instead. And now, back to the show. I mean, it was and has continued to be totally life-changing. I went from living a life of, of being able-bodied, you know, having the privileges that I didn't even realize were just so accessible to me to go where I want, do what I want, you know, and then all of a sudden it just changed like overnight. That's Trey Vasquez again, who we met at the beginning of the show. Since his first flare-up, Trey's fibromyalgia has escalated. He now feels pain everywhere. Uh, neck, back, head, face, like everything, every part of your body that you can feel in, you, I've experienced pain in. And on, on a scale from 1 to 10, how would you rate that pain? Uh, at its peak point, it's definitely like between 9 and 10. Yeah. And with no explanation, it was it was scary. You know, I was like, what is what is wrong with me? Like, do I have some kind of like terminal illness? Like, I had no idea. And I was really not getting far with any kind of testing. What is the long-term diagnosis? Like, what, what did the doctors tell you would happen now that you've been diagnosed with this? Does it ever go away? Are, are there ways to manage it? Mm -hmm. It doesn't ever go away, according to them. And really what you're told is that you're basically left to just manage it, right? And so even just a, a walk around the block or, you know, I'm trying to think, like washing dishes sometimes is, like, too painful. 
it's it's essentially to me what I felt like I was like, dang, I just got this life sentence of pain. That's what they told me. And do you worry that staying there for a fire is going to continue to impact this diagnosis and make it worse? Absolutely. But at the same time, it's like I it's going to be there either way. And that's, that's part of a, a reckoning that I have to do all the time now dealing with this inflammatory condition, disabling condition. And, and so many folks are dealing with disabilities on an entire spectrum. In some ways, Trey's body is a direct mirror image of the world he was organizing in. It was on fire and in pain. That link is a huge part of the book Raj Patel and Rupa Maria wrote, which for those of you who are just tuning back in is called Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. We, we talk a lot in the book about systems and how it is that, in fact, the, the systems that operate inside our body are not contained within our bodies that the ways that we sort of imagine the edge of ourselves is something that's much more porous and extends much further out into the world than we imagine. One place that really highlighted this aspect in the book to me was when Rupert and Raj talk about the salmon run and the ancient waterways that once supported the fish and the indigenous people who depended on them. Now, under capitalism, of course, salmon is the sort of thing you buy at the deli and you know, don't have to worry terribly much about what it is or where it comes from other than apparently it tastes good on a bagel. But th that is not the only way of thinking about salmon. For example, the coastal Salish indigenous communities here on Turtle Island that have treaties with the salmon nations and have different ways of thinking about how salmon flow through rivers and bring nutrients from, you know, way out into the Pacific Ocean all the way into an ecosystem very, very deep inland where you can trace the arrival of certain kinds of nutrients in you know, Pacific forests in the Northwest, way, way, way upstream from the Pacific Ocean through the vector of the salmon that then end up in our bodies in different ways. So when we think about our approach to thinking of systems, the capitalist way of thinking about salmon is, oh, well, you know, one salmon's very much like another. And if we farm them, it'll be just as good as if we get, you know, if we harvest them from the sea. But one of the things that we observe in the book is that actually farmed salmon lack the anti-inflammatory benefits and lack precisely the, the sort of nutritious and healing oils that are found in wild salmon. And capitalism doesn't care about that. Uh, but if your relationship to salmon was not as a commodity, but as a member of a nation with, with which, with whom you had a treaty, then your approach to that being would be really rather radically different. And that's what it is that we're showing, not just in the dysfunction that causes inflammation from eating farmed salmon as opposed to wild salmon, but the web of relations that extend and recognize our, the relationship of this body and this thing of our personhood to the personhood of other beings in the web of life. That web of relations has been broken by our modern capitalist world. And that's not just a mystical idea. This part of the book is really striking because it compares the waterways of the earth with our own blood vessels and shows exactly how damaged waterways and the farmed seafood we've created to replace the natural spawning we've destroyed also affects our arteries. And that's because the salmon in these environments are themselves stressed out and displaced and unhealthy. By keeping salmon penned, by feeding them corn, <laughs> by feeding them un, you know, substances that are not part of their diet, the ways in which we drive their stress response ends up impacting inflammation in the fish itself. In fact, 
there were interesting studies we read on the presence of viruses that have proliferated with farmed fish, farmed salmon in particular, that cause heart and muscle and eye inflammation of those animals. So that when, you know, animals experience damage to their life ways, they become inflamed. It's just so interesting when we were, were researching this book, how much inflammation was a sign of damage. And the lack of inflammation was a sign of something being in harmony with its surroundings and its place in the web of life. And that was looking at soil throughout looking at you know, the way that water moves, how water behaves in dammed rivers versus wild rivers. All of these things were very interesting to me to see and observe the body of the earth like the body of a patient, the body of other beings in the web of life being consonant with our bodies, what, what I'm seeing and what we're seeing in the medical literature. And I think many of us hearing this would think, okay, so farm salmon is dangerous, so I just have to go out and make sure to buy wild salmon. But the answer is not that easy. Because if we want to talk about health in any meaningful way, we need to address the social conditions instead of the individual. Well, so medicine has been very successful in following the contours of power around society in general. And capitalist society operates on the basis of hiding the social causes of things and pathologizing individuals. So, for example, if you develop type 2 diabetes, it's your fault. It's nothing to do with the fact that you may live in an environment where it's hard for you to find the kinds of diet that would you know, tamp down the, the flames of diabetes or that you don't earn enough money to be able to afford a decent diet, which many Americans don't. So instead, the way that medicine approaches any given disease is to view it within the constraints of the body. And one of, one of the things we do in the book is tease apart this idea of diagnosis, because diagnosis is really always about storytelling. And the stories that capitalist medicine tells are always capitalist stories about individual failings and a brave doctor coming in to bring the, the joys of the pharmaceutical industry to, to treat any particular deficit in a particular body without understanding that that body had very little choice in you know, what is it's exposed to. And one of the ideas we use in the book is this idea of the exposome, the, the sum total of exposures in your life that leads to either healthy or, or un unhealthy outcomes. So the reason that we don't think it's helpful to say, well, you know, what you need is to uh, have the right kind of diabetes medicine or the right kind of diet and just sort of pathologize the individual is because that's a misdiagnosis of how it is that most disease is happening. If the story is the, the story of the propagation of inflammation that, you know, that folk have very little control over, like, you know, if you are in debt, then you're more likely to be subject to inflammation. If you are worried about being pulled over the, by the police, you are more likely to be subject to the, the, the stresses that cause inflammation. If you're a minority, or particularly if you are black in America, then you are subject to those kinds of stresses to the nth degree. And that's not something that you can treat with a pill, nor should it be. This idea of understanding that the, the drivers of inflammation are social and therefore the treatment needs to be social and revolutionary, you know, that only f follows logically from a, a very reasonable science-based description of the problem in the first place. So all we're doing by turning away from individual solutions is to observe that pathologizing the individual is part of the problem. So Raj, can you talk to me about what it means to fight for health collectively then and not individually? Because I have to admit that I was a little worried about my own body and future, thinking about all of the trauma and, and the exposures that I've had in my lifetime. You know, I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to die. So 
what what is your message to people who read this like me and become overwhelmed well i mean a, a couple of things first i mean it's true that there is trauma some of it transmitted intergenerationally that is the burden in particular of people of color and of the working class and of women and in the united states and around the world oppressed communities bear this burden as precisely that as a, as a huge disadvantage in their life chances that begins you know at the moment of conception but it's not destiny and that's the other part of the story of inflammation is that everywhere that we looked and you know the, the ways that we researched we found indigenous communities for instance that because they were able to hold on to their languages and were able to understand and interpret and tell different stories and diagnose differently what was happening and maintain a certain kind of collective line beyond which capitalism couldn't go. Those communities were better able to resist, for example, type 2 diabetes than communities that had been forced to lose their language. And so what, what this suggests is that it is possible to develop and nurture within us, no matter how damaged we are, a capacity to be able to fight back. And that I think is, the, I mean, I, I think, you know, we would be doing everyone a disservice if we didn't you know, address with open eyes quite how bad things are at the moment. We're not in the business of saying, oh no, everything's gonna be fine. You know, just drive a Prius and drink through a metal straw and, and buy kale and put it in a tote bag and everything's going to be fine. Uh, on the other hand, what we're trying to do is open our collective eyes to the resistance that is happening around the world. We can find examples of collective action benefiting our health in places we really wouldn't expect. Take payday loans, for example. Payday loans are a quick turnaround type of loan often used by poor people and people of color. They're extremely exploitative. If you take out, say, $300 to pay rent, eventually you end up paying back $800. So an APR of 400%. And what we found was that in places that had banned payday loans, then the, the, the consequences of certain kinds of inflammatory disease like suicide and drug overdose rates dropped precipitously. And so this is a way of saying, hey, you know what? Yes, we are burdened by stress, but we can collectively undertake certain kinds of policies together that will end that inflammation. And so the, the treatment is not, you know, just take your probiotics. It is... You know, rise up and reclaim the state and fight back against capitalism. And we can do that together because there's data that shows that we can. Fixing the social conditions that lead to disease through collective revolutionary action is what Raj and Rupa called deep medicine. We can achieve health when the whole system is healthy, which means that people aren't being cast out and stepped over on a sidewalk, which means people aren't being swept up like trash because they happen to be poor, which means that we are obligated to duties of care, not just to one another, but to the entire web of life. And that is the mentality that is required. That's the deep medicine that is required, is to reawaken our responsibilities to one another and to the life around us. And that doesn't just include humans, it includes the non-human, the more than human world around us. Trey Vasquez is one of the many organizers on the forefront of restoring that balance and creating the deep medicine that Raj and Rupa argue for in their book. But he says he's also learned something else very important about what deep medicine might look like for all of us as we begin to feel the effects of a struggling planet and social systems. I mean, I think for me, like a huge part of this process for me has unearthed so much of how violently 
ableist, this culture that we live in is, you know, I had to really face some deep shadows inside of myself, like how ableism had been deeply conditioned in me. I remember at some of the peaks of my flare-ups, I was just like, what is my worth? Like, I can't do anything right now. And I had a really good friend of mine and men mentor-type person, comrade um, Patty Byrne, who works with Sins and Violet, who asked me some deep questions. And she was like, if you were completely immobilized, you know, would you believe that you were worth living? And she was like, if you were like in a coma, would you believe that, that you were worth living still? And I had to really sit with that question and realize that I had been in, taught to believe that if I, wa if I was, then I wasn't worth living. And I, I've heard so many other folks talk about that when dealing with disabilities and particularly as we're linking it to environmental conditions and all the inextricable links to capitalism and, and all that, I feel like we have to deal with ableism as a huge part of this climate crisis that we're in, of this, the collapse that we're experiencing right now. Like we have to just the same as white supremacy, just the same as all of the other forms of oppression that we are trying to break down in our movement. So I'm always like, I got to bring that to the forefront. And that does it for today's show. Also, thank you to Raj Patel and Rupa Maria. You can find out more information about the book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine, and the Anatomy of Injustice on our website. Please visit us at radioproject.org and leave us a comment. I'm Sulima Hamarani. Thank you for listening to Making Contact.